Getting around today will be complicated. The nor'easter is affecting roads and speed restrictions continue on parts of the T. It's Tuesday, March 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new report card on inflation is out this morning. We look at how efforts to combat skyrocketing prices are being complicated by stress in the banking industry. Plus, Massachusetts customers are racing to retrieve their deposits from Silicon Valley Bank and trying to decide which banks to trust. Where should our money be right now? It's not just SVB, it's, you know, there's the whole system seems to be under threat right now. Also this hour, the U.S. is strengthening ties with several Pacific nations in an effort to expand influence in the region and counter China. In return, what we get as the United States is near exclusive military access. Gusty winds and heavy rain turn to snow around noon today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A powerful winter storm is hitting the Northeast. NPR's Giles Snyder reports it will bring a lot of snow. Measurable snowfall in the Northeast has been lacking this winter, but this Nor'easter is expected to dump as much as two and a half feet as it makes its way from Pennsylvania into Maine. National Weather Service forecaster Andrew Orson says snow could fall at a rate of two to three inches an hour. And again, there will be strong winds, and the combination of those two will produce dangerous low impossible travel. And again, we talked about the uh, power outage concerns as well. The Weather Service is warning of the nor'easter at the same time as another atmospheric river moves into California. Forecasters are warning of life-threatening flooding and heavy snowfall in higher elevations. Joel Snyder, NPR News. In addition to heavy snow in mountainous areas, the atmospheric river is bringing heavy rain to parts of California. That's led to flood watches today. The warmer weather is melting heavy snowpack, and the National Weather Service says many rivers are out of their banks. Several California communities have been told to evacuate. That includes part of Monterey County. A levee there breached, flooding hundreds of homes. Illinois will become the third state to require employers to give their workers paid leave that can be used for any reason. From member station WBEZ, Alex Degman has more. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the measure requiring that workers accrue at least 40 hours of paid time off per 12-month period. They'll get one hour of leave per 40 hours worked. Until now, only Nevada and Maine allowed workers to use paid time off for any reason. Pritzker says that's crucial. Too many people can't afford to miss even a day's pay. But then crises arise. When their car breaks down, when their child gets sick, when an elderly parent needs help. The law takes effect next year. For NPR News, I'm Alex Stegman in Springfield, Illinois. The U.S. has mapped out details of a new pact with Australia and Britain to send nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. President Biden met with Australia and Britain's leaders yesterday in San Diego to discuss it. Biden says part of the so-called AUKUS deal is already underway. Beginning this year, Australian personnel will embed with U.S. and U.K. crews on boats and at bases in our schools and our shipyards. We'll also begin to increase our port visits to Australia. In fact, as we speak, the nuclear-powered sub USS Asheville is making a port call in Perth as we speak. The three-country agreement is intended to counter China's military influence in the Indo-Pacific region. The government releases its latest snapshot on inflation later this morning. The news is being tracked by policymakers at the Federal Reserve. They've been boosting interest rates to help bring inflation down but they may refrain following the collapse of two banks this week. 
This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. New England's latest nor'easter is already impacting travel in the area. According to the website FlightAware, there are already more than 100 cancellations at Logan Airport this morning. MBTA ferry service has also been canceled today, as have several steamship authority trips between Cape Cod and the islands. The State Emergency Management Agency website lists more than 20,000 power outages in the state, most in western Massachusetts. Boston Public Schools are open today. but all afternoon and evening activities are canceled. Local businesses and individuals are still in the process of moving their funds from the failed Silicon Valley Bank. The Biden administration assured depositors their funds are safe. But as WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports, some are still worried about a chilling effect on businesses. According to the research company Crunchbase, Massachusetts startups received almost $55 billion in investment dollars over the last couple of years, among the highest in the U.S. But Babson College finance professor Michael Goldstein worries the Silicon Valley bank collapse could spook investors and make things harder for local entrepreneurs. This is not good, and it has nothing to do with whether my drug works or my idea is good or whether my product's any good. It's, are the people who are willing to fund me willing to send me money when they're worried about the banking system. Silicon Valley Bank was the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she shares the frustrations of tea writers. The tea says it expects speed restrictions to stay in place on large parts of the subway system for the foreseeable future. That's so crews can conduct safety inspections on the tracks. Wu says officials, including Governor Maura Healey and interim MBTA general manager Jeff Gonneville, are doing everything they can to help. We feel that sense of frustration. This is a big picture economic issue. It is an individual physical stress and emotional health issue for, for many of our commuters. And I know there's the collective energy to do something about it. And it's a matter of moving fast to do it. The mayor says she took a green line ride yesterday that crawled in spots. Slow zones are in place on all of the green line, the Mattapan line and parts of the red, blue and orange lines. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Camp Maravista, where kids ages 8 to 17 discover their best selves in the New Hampshire mountains. Enrolling now at AYF.com slash Maravista. The Celtics are coming off a disappointing loss to the Rockets. Houston came into the night with the worst record in the NBA. They still pulled off a three-point win against the Seas. The Celtics have tonight off. They'll be on the road tomorrow in Minnesota. The Bruins are on the road tonight in Chicago. They skate with the Blackhawks at 8.30. Heavy rain today with a high wind warning and a winter weather advisory going into effect in an hour here. Wind gusts could reach as high as 30 miles per hour. The rain will likely turn to heavy, wet snow sometime after noon. Tonight, the mix of rain and snow will turn completely to snow overnight, up to four inches possible. It'll be windy with low temperatures around 33 degrees. Tomorrow, a chance of snow in the morning, but that'll likely turn to more rain. High temperatures in the low 40s. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. New inflation numbers come out this morning, and they're expected to show what most Americans already know, that prices are still climbing at an uncomfortably rapid rate. The Federal Reserve has been trying to curb inflation by raising interest rates, but that effort just got more complicated after the high-profile collapse of two regional banks. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Good morning, Sasha. The Fed has been trying pretty aggressively for a while to bring inflation down. Doesn't seem that successful. What, give us the overview of what's happening to prices. They're still going up, although not as fast as they were. A Fed Chairman Jerome Powell told lawmakers last week the price of some goods has leveled off, and there are signs that rents aren't climbing as fast as they were. But the cost of a lot of services, like restaurant meals or dental checkups, are still going up. And because people spend a lot of money on services, that's keeping overall inflation about three times as high as the Fed's long-range target. Although inflation has been moderating in recent months, the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go and is likely to be bumpy. And now there's this new bump in the road, the collapse of those two big regional banks in recent days. Some analysts think that's going to force the Fed to be more cautious about raising interest rates when policymakers meet next week. Right. And tell us more about that. Why would two bank failures affect the Fed's strategy and how it tries to fight inflation? Well, the Fed's mission is not only promoting price stability and maximum employment, but also safeguarding the stability of the financial system. It's pretty hard to have a working economy if the banking system is falling apart. Over the last year, the Fed has raised interest rates very aggressively, and that was one of the factors in the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, While both the Fed and the FDIC acted quickly to prevent a more widespread run on banks, the fallout from that Silicon Valley failure is being felt throughout the industry. Uh, Stocks and a lot of other regional banks have taken a beating in recent days. Just yesterday, Moody's bond rating service placed half a dozen banks under review. Uh, Senior economist Michael Puglisi of Wells Fargo says if that uncertainty continues, then the Fed's going to have bigger concerns next week than just what we see in today's consumer price index or CPI. I don't think the CPI is going to be the determinant of whether or not the Fed hikes. I think that's going to be determined far more how the financial markets and just the financial system more broadly does or does not stabilize between now and a week from Wednesday. Just a week ago, the Fed was expected to raise interest rates by at least a quarter percentage point next week and maybe half a point. But since these bank failures, betting markets now think a half point rate hike is off the table next week and the Fed may skip raising interest rates altogether. So let's say, Scott, that happens, that there's a smaller rate hike than expected or no rate hike. What's the risk that causes inflation to spike? It's always a balancing act. The Fed said many times it doesn't want to repeat the mistakes of the 1970s by letting up on inflation prematurely, only to then see costs climb out of control again. But it's possible the Fed has a little bit more maneuvering room here. Uh, Just yesterday, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York released a survey showing that people's expectations of inflation a year from now have gone down in the last month. Uh, the Fed keeps a close eye on those expectations because you know, where people think inflation is going to go can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the fact that expectations have, have eased in the last month could give the central bank a little time here. Hmm. NPR Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. Right now, other mid-sized banks are taking pains to assure their investors and depositors they won't be the next Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank. Senator Elizabeth Warren is on the line to discuss what might have prevented those implosions and what should be done to avoid future collapses. Good morning, Senator. Good morning. So, Senator Warren, you said the blame for these bank failures lies in Washington. Walk us through why you say that. So remember, after the crash in 2008, we understood 
that if you don't put pretty strict regulations on these big banks, they'll go out and boost their profits by taking on a lot of risks. And so Dodd-Frank was passed and said, for the big banks, we're really going to put some stringent controls in place, so-called stress tests and higher capital requirements and more regular uh, and closer looks at those banks. And that worked. And then in 2018, uh, the Republicans under Donald Trump said, no, we need to loosen those regulations. And they got some help from the Democrats and ultimately passed a bill that rolled back that kind of protection for banks that were bigger than $50 billion, but smaller than $250 billion. So this slice of big banks, and their argument, by the way, at the time, the banks, is they said, we're too small to cause any problems in the economy. Mm. Now, you know, I warned this is not going to work. This is not going to end well. And sure enough, we saw the consequences of that over the weekend. These very large banks that had very aggressively taken on risk of SVB had seen its profits grow by 40% in the last three years, and their CEO had paid himself a big salary and lots of bonuses for all the executives, and it all worked great right up until the bank exploded. Washington needs to put those stricter regulations in place. So that's a big part of the problem. Now, former congressman and former board member of Signature Bank, Barney Frank, who ended up supporting those loosening of restrictions, told my colleague Juana Summers on All Things Considered, it wasn't the rollback of the Dodd-Frank Act in the case of a Signature Bank, but crypto that fueled the bank failures. What's your response to that? Well, you know, let's remember, we watched two banks fail simultaneously And one of them, uh, it's a very different story. In both cases, it was about loading up on risk Mm. in order to boost the profits. And look, that's what some of these bank executives want to do. They say, gee, this is a, you know, a great opportunity to make money by loading up on risk. It is the job of the regulators to stop them. And rolling back those regulations is why the bank regulators weren't in a position to stop them. Now, I should also be clear here, it's not just Congress. It's also the Fed that stepped in. Well, speaking of that, the Fed announced it's reviewing its own oversight of Silicon Valley Bank in light of what's happened. What do you want to see from that review, and should the Federal Reserve be investigating itself? Look, for this inquiry to have any credibility, Chair Powell must recuse himself. And the reason behind that is that when the law was weakened, it permitted the Fed to loosen those regulations. Chair Powell led the charge on that. He not only loosened the regulations, he went further than some people thought the law permitted. You know, this is part of the reason that I opposed him for his renomination to be chair of the Fed. I thought that this was a very dangerous move on mm. his part. He did not follow through on the regulation and supervision obligations of the Fed. And now we've watched at least two banks explode over that. Now, in your view, was waiving the insurance cap to contain uh the fear really around this, uh, the right move to get depositors back all their money? 
You know, I want to start by saying I'm so glad that Joe Biden is president of the United States right now. He's been very calm in this, very steady. And I very much understand why it was necessary to protect small businesses, to protect nonprofits, to say that, you know, these businesses, they, they weren't making profits off the banks. Their job was just to put money in the bank so they could make payroll next Monday. And stepping in and backstopping that so they could count on getting access to their money, I think that is the right thing to do. Now, for the giant so-called depositor, the one who really acts more like an investor who has a billion dollars in that bank, uh, giving those guys help, no, I'm not so on board for that. Hmm. What's your message uh, to people who use smaller regional banks who are worried right now about their deposits? The deposits are going to be fine. Hmm. The federal government has stepped in and said, we're going to make sure that depositors are protected. And that means everyone should breathe a big sigh of relief over that issue. Now we need to make changes in the law so this problem doesn't happen again. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts. Thank you so much, Senator, for your time. Thank you for having me. The first woman that Colorado ever sent to Congress has died. In 1972, Pat Schroeder was 32 years old and a mother of two when she became one of just 14 women in the U.S. House of Representatives. Here she is in 1998 on NPR's Fresh Air. There were no women pages, no women interns, no women anything. I mean, there, it, it really was the guy Gulagog. And the attitude was, you're just so lucky that we let you on the House floor. Schroeder was the first woman to serve on the House Armed Services Committee. She co-founded the Congressional Women's Caucus. She fought for equal pay, the Equal Rights Amendment, and family leave. And she was known for her passion and her wit. If you've heard the term Teflon president to describe the late President Ronald Reagan, it began with Schroeder. And then one morning I was doing eggs on a Teflon plan, and I suddenly thought, that's it. This guy has a Teflon coat, just like this dog on pan. <laughs> Reviled in some political circles and revered as a feminist icon in others, she left office in 1997. I always wanted to go out at the top of my game, you know. We always said that you came out of Congress one of three different ways, by a ballot box, <laughs> by a coffin-type box, or you can walk out on your own. And I wanted to walk out on my own. She titled her memoir, 24 Years of Housework, and the place is still a mess. She had some final plans that she shared on NPR's All Things Considered. I always wanted to be cremated and made into a doorstop so I could hold a door open. Because basically, what I want to do is hold doors open for people. And I figured that's what I was trying to do in my political career, so why not try and do it in the afterlife, too? Pat Schroeder was 82. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we learn about one of the most notorious and secretive Russian military units operating in Ukraine. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. 
Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Personalized to your needs. Certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Paris Hilton was the it girl of the 2000s, an influencer before Instagram and TikTok existed. But now she's opening up about her life beyond the flashbulbs of the paparazzi. For so long, I've been misunderstood and underestimated and nobody really knew what I had went through in life. Her new memoir on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We have high winds and it's raining across the region at this hour. That'll continue and the rain will be heavy at times until about noon when temperatures start falling to the low 30s and it'll become heavy, wet snow. Tonight, more snow and high winds still in the low 30s. Travel will be treacherous. There's also a risk of coastal flooding. In all, we may get four to six inches of accumulation in the Boston area. Areas of central and northern Massachusetts could see 12 to 18 inches. Tomorrow, rain in the morning. Those showers taper off by about noon. Then it'll be mostly cloudy in the low 40s. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive, providing cloud backup to protect PCs, Macs, mobile devices, and servers, along with iDrive E2, offering hot S3 compatible object storage at iDrive.com. And from IFC Films with The Lost King, from the makers of Philomena, comes the story of an amateur historian who believes she's found the lost burial site of England's notorious Richard III, only in theaters March 24th. And from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Leila Falden. Good morning. Russia's 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade is one of its most notorious and secretive military units. And even before Ukraine was invaded, it was implicated in killing hundreds of civilians. NPR investigative correspondent Tim Mack followed their movements and found their former headquarters in a liberated region of Ukraine. The region of Kharkiv is in northeast Ukraine. It is the site of some of the earliest and fiercest fighting in the full-scale war between Ukraine and Russia. We'd asked to talk to the prosecutor general for the region, Alexander Pelchakov. He's been tracking Russian units for possible war crimes investigations and has some news for us about the 53rd. Yes, I can confirm that, that we had information that for some time they were settled in Izum region, in Izum district, in Kharkiv region. We'd been looking for information about this unit for months. The 53rd Brigade is notorious for its role in the downing of a Malaysian Airlines flight in 2014. A joint investigation team concluded that a missile system supplied by the 53rd Brigade was behind it and the killing of 298 civilians, including 196 Dutch nationals on board. You can regard the downing of Flight MH17 as Dutch 9-11. That's Brekje van Mozek, a spokesperson for the joint investigation team. When it happened, it was a hot summer's day, July 17, 2014. Everybody was happy and on holidays, and then this plane was downed. Last month at The Hague, the joint investigation team held a press conference to announce some final findings. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. 
they had stunning news to report. The investigators played intercepted phone calls that they had obtained of Russian-backed separatists that were fighting in eastern Ukraine in 2014. Using these calls, investigators concluded that the president of Russia was behind the transfer of an anti-aircraft system, the same system that eventually shot down MH17. It underscored the 53rd Brigade's fatal actions were at the direction of the most powerful person in Russia, Vladimir Putin. After the press conference, I spoke to a member of a victim's family, a man named Pete Plug. I always say our family members were in fact the first non-Ukrainian victims of a war that started eight years ago. His brother, his brother's wife, and their son were on the plane. So everything what gives us information about the role of Russia in Ukraine is for us important. Because it helps us to form the world opinion about the role of Russia in Ukraine. As an anti-aircraft missile brigade, the 53rd is a strategic Russian asset with the ability to shoot down Ukrainian jets and helicopters. They would have provided cover for other Russian units to fire on Ukrainian troops, says George Barros, a Russia analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. Militaries undertake significant efforts to try to hide their important key battlefield assets. The 53rd is certainly one of those. During fighting this past fall, Ukrainian forces had retrieved some documents Russian forces left behind, including information about the 53rd. After months of investigations, we had the prospect of finding intelligence that could reveal without a doubt what the 53rd had been up to. So we traveled to Izum to meet with local prosecutors. Hello. Hello. One of the prosecutors said Russian troops had left behind some important files. In one of the headquarters of Russian forces, we found this document that uh, consisted of the list of the units that the Russian forces they had in the area of Izum. And on the 17th line of that document was information about who the 53rd's commander was, his phone number, his call sign, the number of troops he had with him, and where his former headquarters were in an old chocolate warehouse in Izum. So we took the documents to Barros. I've seen these kinds of documents before, and it looks legitimate. They confirmed that the 53rd had been actively fighting in Ukraine during the full-scale invasion. Despite the international community's condemnation of the brigade's actions, including the killing of hundreds of civilians, Russia redeployed the notorious unit to eastern Ukraine to use its deadly capabilities once again. Politically and symbolically, it is significant. It is all information that would be important to Ukrainian and Western prosecutors looking to find justice for possible war crimes, not to mention the families of the victims of MH17. This unit did not face any retribution. They did not face any justice for the crimes they committed. And unfortunately, this is very much a systematic of the way that the Russian Federation has been able to violate international law. There was one more place we had to go. These old chocolate warehouses on a street littered with rubble in Izum. Izum itself was cleared of Russian troops months before we arrived. When we got to the warehouse, there was no sign of the 53rd. We asked the locals whether they had observed any. So you heard and saw that there were anti-aircraft going off near this place? We not only heard, we also saw it, how they were operating from here. That confirmation is important for people like Selena Fredericks, whose son was killed on MH17. She's paid special attention to the 53rd 
and is haunted by how members of that unit could have made their fateful and deadly decisions. Watch everything that has anything to do with the war now going on and everything that has to do with MH17 and Russia, Ukraine. Information about the unit, about the Russian military's actions, help her process her grief. I will never have closure. But when we get to know parts of the truth, gives us rest. The Russian government's ongoing deadly actions, however, make that rest more elusive. Russia has been very brutal and they're capable of really, really everything and they don't care for civilian targets. That's a strategy, civilian targets. Shortly before the airing of this story, a Russia state-affiliated media outlet announced that President Vladimir Putin had signed a new decree. It was about the 53rd Brigade. Apparently unconcerned about how it would look to the outside world, he ordered that the unit be given a new honorary designation, the title of guards, a term reserved for supposedly elite Russian units. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kharkiv. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, President Biden has announced that the U.S. will sell nuclear-powered attack submarines to Australia so that country can modernize its fleet amid growing concern about China's influence in the Indo-Pacific. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the new WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom, by Ilyan Wu, the true story of an enslaved couple's daring escape. Available now. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Federal Reserve will get its latest look at inflation in the U.S. economy when new numbers on consumer prices are released this morning. NPR's Scott Horsley says the Fed's next policy meeting is a week away. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says while some goods prices have started to level off or even come down, the prices of many services are still going up, and that's keeping overall inflation well above the Fed's target range of 2%. The Fed's been trying to bring prices under control by raising interest rates, but that effort's now been complicated by the collapse of two regional banks. Some analysts think the failures of Silicon Valley Bank in California and Signature Bank in New York will prompt the Fed to be more cautious about any additional rate hikes at next week's meeting. Fed watchers now think the central bank's unlikely to raise rates by more than a quarter percentage point and may opt to leave interest rates right where they are. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been released from a hospital in Washington following treatment for a concussion and a rib fracture. McConnell tripped and fell at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel nearly a week ago. The Republican senator from Kentucky will undergo inpatient rehabilitation before going home. McConnell is 81 years old. Twelve-term Democratic Congresswoman Pat Schroeder of Colorado has died at the age of 82. Her former press secretary says Schroeder suffered a stroke in Florida, where she lived. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
This morning, winds are already causing power outages across the region. The state's Emergency Management Agency website lists more than 20,000 power outages right now. Most of those are in western Massachusetts. You'll also want to double-check your flight set status if you're heading to the airport. There are more than 100 cancellations already at Logan this morning. MBTA ferry service is also canceled today. So are several steamship authority trips between Cape Cod and the islands. A new environmental official will join the Healy administration next week. Bonnie Hypole will be the new commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. WPWAR's Palomora reports. Hypole worked as an environmental attorney in the private sector. In many cases, she defended companies against government lawsuits. Bradley Campbell is with environmental advocacy group Conservation Law Foundation. He says Hypel will face significant challenges to implement the state's climate agenda and environmental justice provisions. As we transition to a clean energy future, it's a just transition in which everyone has a voice and historic disparities in environmental protection are remedied. Campbell says the new commissioner must also finalize new clean water rules for Cape Cod. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. Prominent Boston-area chef Ming Tsai is apologizing for some controversial comments. During an interview at WBUR's City Space last month, Tsai asked fellow chef Irene Lee if she had roofied him. He then joked that he put a date rape drug in her drink. A few days ago, Lee called out Tsai's comments on social media. Yesterday, Tsai issued an apology saying he regrets those comments. He goes on to say he never meant to be insensitive or dismissive of those who've been affected by sexual misconduct. Boston Public Schools is asking for state funding to merge two elementary schools in Dorchester and Mattapan. The merger would be part of the district's plan to increase enrollment and build new schools. District officials say many schools don't have facilities like gyms and libraries. BPS won't find out if the project is funded until the end of the year. Another slow zone has been issued for ships and boats in area waters due to the presence of endangered right whales. The latest slow zone is south of Martha's Vineyard. Slow zones also remain in effect south and southeast of Nantucket. All these slow zones are in effect through March 25th. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. The Celtics are coming off a loss to the team with the worst record in the NBA. They were defeated by the Houston Rockets last night on the road. The final score was 111-109. to The Seas are off tonight. They'll play the Timberwolves tomorrow in Minnesota. The Bruins will hit the ice tonight in Chicago. The puck drops in their game against the Blackhawks at 8.30. High winds and rain this morning, and it might be heavy at times. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce reports the showers will soon turn to snow. Areas of rain will transition to snow from west to east from late morning to early afternoon. Expect a changeover in Boston right around or just before noon. Then it snows steadily and at times heavily through the evening. Expect treacherous travel, variable road conditions. Snow tapers off 9 to 11 p.m. Snow totals 4 to 6 inches in Boston, the north and south shore. Less Plymouth to Cape Cod and more north and west of the city. Tomorrow, rain in the morning, mostly cloudy in the afternoon in the low 40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater. 
committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Countering China is a growing goal for the United States. That's why the U.S. is bulking up its naval presence in the Pacific. And it wants countries like the U.K. and Australia to do the same. So they now have a long-term agreement to share nuclear submarine technology. It's been in the works a year and a half. And as NPR's Scott Detrow reports, yesterday's kickoff came amid rising tensions between Washington and Beijing. President Biden basked in the San Diego sun, flanked by the prime ministers of Australia and the U.K. A nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Missouri, was moored behind them. I don't know whether our friends can hear, but the USS Missouri, can you hear us? The three men were there to detail the timeline of their new military collaboration called AUKUS. AUKUS. It's an unusual name, AUKUS, but it's a powerful entity. It's a mashup of Australia, the U.K., and the U.S., and the centerpiece of the decades-long plan is getting nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. They're strategically important because they can spend a long time underwater, making them stealthier. Australia plans to buy several of them from the U.S., and by the 2040s, the three nations will have built a brand-new submarine together. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. This is the first time in 65 years and only the second time in history that the United States has shared its nuclear propulsion technology, and we thank you for it. The deal is more than just a military sale. There's a broader strategic goal at play. AUKUS has one overriding objective, to enhance the stability of Indo-Pacific amid rapidly shifting global dynamics. That's essentially diplomatic language for putting more military strength into the Pacific in order to deter China. Though during their joint appearance, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was the only leader to directly talk about what he framed as China's growing assertiveness. Faced with this new reality, it is more important than ever that we strengthen the resilience of our own countries. The announcement comes at a moment of rising tension and suspicious rhetoric in both countries. In the U.S. Congress, it's one of the few areas where there's bipartisan support. Here's Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher at a recent hearing. We may call this a strategic competition, but... It's not a polite tennis match. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. Chinese officials are sounding similar lately. Chinese President Xi Jinping recently warned that the U.S. was engaged in containment, encirclement, and suppression. This all has many China-U.S. experts worried. Ali Wine is an analyst with the Eurasia Group. He says all this internal pressure to be tough means the U.S. and China just aren't talking to each other as much right now. The less diplomacy you have, the greater the risk there is of a military accident, a military miscalculation. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan concedes the U.S. is concerned about the state of the military channels between the two countries, a place where officials can quickly sort out these kinds of issues. But he says the U.S. and the Chinese government are still communicating. And we have directly engaged with China to explain to them what AUKUS is and what it is not. In brief exchanges with reporters Monday, Biden said he was confident China would not view the submarine deal as an act of aggression. And he says he does have plans to get on the phone again with Xi soon. 
though he wouldn't say exactly when that conversation will take place. Scott Tetro, NPR News, San Diego. Deals with smaller Pacific Rim countries are also part of Washington's strategy to deflect China. As WUNC's Jay Price reports, the U.S. is forging these agreements to expand its influence, solidify existing relationships, and give the military more footholds. We're pleased to announce today that President Marcos has approved four new EDCA locations. In Manila last month, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin unveiled a new agreement with the Philippines. It gives the U.S. access to four bases there. That made a big splash. Getting less attention, though, has been a flurry of other deal-making in the past few weeks with tiny nations scattered across the Pacific. Three preliminary agreements renew and expand long-term deals with the governments of Palau, the Marshall Islands, and Micronesia. And in February, the State Department opened a new U.S. embassy in the Solomon Islands. It says it's discussing two more embassies in Tonga and Kiribati and is negotiating a security agreement with yet another island nation. Papua New Guinea. Derek Grossman is a senior defense analyst with Rand Corporation. So we are definitely in the business now of trying to maintain the edge that we have influence-wise in the Pacific Islands vis-a-vis China. Many of these smaller nations are part of what's sometimes referred to in geopolitical circles as the Second Island Chain, a vaguely defined group that's farther from the Asian mainland and Chinese missile launchers than, say, Taiwan and Japan, but close enough to help the U.S. project power into the region. And that's why... We have to be friends with these island nations for that eventuality. Gregorio Kalili Camacho Sablan represents the Northern Mariana Islands in the U.S. Congress. This second chain isn't really a chain. It's a patchwork that includes the Northern Marianas and another U.S. territory, Guam, where not coincidentally in January, the Marine Corps activated its first new base in 70 years. Sablan called the recent diplomatic moves in his region an important deterrent to war. He cites speculation he's seen from think tanks. Some people in think tanks already are exhibiting with, you know, exhibitions of who's first is going to get destroyed and then who's the second wave and, you know, all of those things, right? We need to strengthen it before we get there. It's unclear how much this will cost. A State Department spokesperson said the U.S. sends Palau, the Marshall Islands, and Micronesia together more than $300 million a year now under deals called Compacts of Free Association. The State Department declined to say how much it's offering in negotiations to renew the 20-year compacts, but leaders of two of the countries have suggested the payments could increase 75% or more. The three nations are already so closely tied to the U.S their citizens can live and work here and get benefits like Medicaid. In return, what we get as the United States is near-exclusive military access to the freely associated states. Again, defense analyst Derek Grossman. We can set up basing on their territories. We can fly over their territories. We can use their 200 nautical mile distance off their shores for military purposes. I mean, there are very few limitations. Grossman says for their part, the island nations have little interest in the maneuvering between the U.S. and China. Instead, they're looking for help with things like bolstering economies damaged by the pandemic and especially dealing with climate change, which they regard as a much larger threat than China. And they've come out saying, we get it. We know that this is about competition against China, but we also need to make sure that our own national interests are preserved. 
And now they've got a little leverage. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Durham, North Carolina. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, for the first time in its history, a popular skating canal in Ottawa has failed to ice over properly. Now scientists are trying to figure out how to save the skating season. And in our next hour, today is National Equal Pay Day. Unfortunately, women still make 82 cents for every dollar earned by men. In your forecast, it's a rainy, windy morning across the greater Boston region. Temperatures will fall throughout the day to the low 30s, and by about noon, the showers will turn to snow. The wind and snow continue into the late evening, and in all, we may get about 4 to 6 inches in Boston. Parts of central and northern Mass may see 12 to 18 inches. Tomorrow morning, rain in the low 40s, then mostly cloudy in the afternoon. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. Wentworth Institute of Technology plans to build a life sciences building on its campus. It's the first part of the school's campus to be put up for commercial development. Developers estimate the project will cost $1 billion. A new artisan market opens at City Hall Plaza this week. The Boston Artisan Market will be open Fridays to Sundays through May. City officials say they want to support local businesses while bringing more people downtown. A roadside restaurant and ice cream shop in Westwood is scaling back operations. Bubbling Brook won't reopen its kitchen this year. The owners say they want a better work-life balance. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for joining us this morning. The fallout continues from the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Customers are rushing to try to get their deposits out after the bank was taken over by regulators Friday. We're still learning the full scope of Silicon Valley's collapse. WBUR's Beth Healy joins us to talk about it. Good morning, Beth. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Just to start Who has been most affected by the collapse? In other words, who were Silicon Valley Bank's customers? So this is a bank that was known for courting high-tech companies and venture capital-backed startups, and that sector has been stunned by the bank's collapse. But we learned that there's more. It turns out the bank also had many nonprofit customers in greater Boston, like community development groups and charter schools, and they're feeling the pain too. That's surprising, right? Why were these groups banking at Silicon Valley. So back in 2021, Silicon Valley Bank acquired Boston Private Bank and Trust. 
That was a bank that catered to wealthy people, business owners, nonprofits, and it turns out, charter schools. Huh, so what does this mean for those schools? At least a dozen charter schools in the Boston area have accounts and loans with Silicon Valley Bank. At the Excel Academy Charter Schools, they're in East Boston, Chelsea, and North Providence. CEO Owen Stern says everyone in that world is rethinking which banks to trust and how to spread money around to keep it safe. You know, quickly pivots to like, okay, you know, where should our money be right now? It's not just SVB. It's, you know, the whole system seems to be under threat right now. Hmm. What about other customers? What did they say? We talked to folks who run community development corporations. Many of them develop affordable housing and provide other services to residents. They had loans with Boston Private that Silicon Valley took over. Now, if regulators succeed in finding a buyer for the failed bank, An even bigger institution would likely inherit the loans. So lots of people in affordable housing are worried this is going to cause a lot of upheaval at a time when the city's in dire need of housing. Here's what Kimberly Lyle had to say. She's chief executive of Dorchester Bay Economic Development. The reality is that Silicon Valley Bank has loaned money to housing projects in California, in Massachusetts, potentially elsewhere, right? Their impacts are so much bigger than the tech ecosystem. So what's next for the bank's customers? First, everybody's still working to get their money out as quickly as they can. And they're waiting to see who might take over the bank or if it gets broken up into pieces. It's going to be a big change for legions of tech entrepreneurs and nonprofits. WBUR's Beth Healy, thank you so much for keeping us up to date on this. Thanks for having me. another hour of morning edition still to come then at 11 it's radio boston and tiziana deering has fought the wind and rain to be here to give us a preview good morning tiziana might be a bit soggy but it doesn't matter on radio so <laughs> thankfully <laughs> good morning rufa good morning great to hear beth's uh, uh, update there yeah. um, really important story she's doing an amazing job following it Um, But in the meantime, today on Radio Boston, we also need to catch up on the MBTA. Oh, you don't say. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the increased slow zones, the the bizarre 10.03 p.m. press Mm -hmm. release last Thursday night, you know, that there was going to be blanket slow zones. They've lifted some of those, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, The search for the GM. Some of this feels like it's old, right? We've had maintenance problems, et cetera. Some of this feels new, especially under a new governor with yes. new responsibilities. But also, you know, we do have a decent amount of infrastructure for the size of our population, et cetera. How do we get past fixing and think towards excellence, right? So we'll talk about all of that with a number of guests today on the show. That's a very brave question to ask at this point. <laughs> Thank you, TCM. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Camp Mero Vista, where kids ages 8 to 17 discover their best selves in the New Hampshire mountains. Enrolling now at ayf.com slash Vista. Paris Hilton was the it girl of the 2000s, an influencer before Instagram and TikTok existed. But now she's opening up about her life beyond the flashbulbs of the paparazzi. For so long, I've been misunderstood and underestimated and nobody really knew what I went through in life. Her new memoir, On All Things Considered, from NPR News. 
Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Laurel Braitman was still in high school when she experienced one of the most devastating things that can happen to a child. Her father died. That affected the rest of her young adult life. Nearly three decades later, she's written a memoir about that experience. It's called What Looks Like Bravery. Braitman says she had a happy childhood, growing up on an idyllic ranch in California with donkeys and peacocks and avocado trees. But she had to keep a brave face as she watched her father get sick. She told me her parents never tried to hide his illness from her. Well, my dad was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, which is a rare and aggressive form of bone cancer. My parents absolutely did not try to protect us from it. And I think that was mostly a blessing, but it was also hard. So my dad was given an initial prognosis of about six months and prepared us for his death. You know, he said goodbye. Um, He started to get his affairs in order. And then he didn't die. Um, He went on his own journey for the next, oof, probably 14 years um, to find treatments, oftentimes experimental. But the thing was, we would never know how much time we were going to get. So we would get time with him in, in, in tiny chunks, like four months here, a year there, six weeks there, and then we'd say goodbye again. So we really lived with the ticking clock of mortality for years and years. We were never quite able to take a day for granted. Part of the reason that your father lived so much longer than his doctors thought he would is that he was very good at advocating for himself in the healthcare system, maybe because he was a doctor himself. You wrote he even got one surgery against the advice of his oncologist, but that bought him time. What lessons do you think his experience offered the rest of us about health advocacy, if anything at all? No one cares as much about your outcomes as you do. I learned that at a very, very early age. And that isn't to say that your healthcare team doesn't care about you. Absolutely, they do. But such is the way with modern healthcare. People aren't talking to each other. You need to be your own advocate. And against all odds, you need to fight for the kind of care that you deserve. And I wish that wasn't true um, in this country, but it absolutely is. And for him, it paid off, at least in terms of extra time with his family. It did. It did. He, he also taught me, you know, that you shouldn't be scared to ask questions of your physicians and nurses and other folks who are helping you. If a doctor is annoyed or frustrated by you asking questions, he told me to run, not walk out of their office, that a really good physician is just going to appreciate that you're asking questions and that you're curious and won't be threatened by the need to answer you. No one cares as much about your outcomes as you do. Your dad lived till a few months before your high school graduation. In your book, you jump all the way from his death to when you were 36 years old. You skip what happened in between. How would you sum up your life from high school till mid-30s? I was on an epic hamster wheel of achievement. You know, I would do anything for a brass ring of success. And the blessing of what my dad did when my brother and I were growing up was lay out all these beautiful things that we could become and things we could do as adults. But I overinterpreted that as a to-do list. And there was all kinds of things on there, you know, from writing a New York Times bestselling book to getting a PhD at MIT. And I spent 20 years, one by one, checking every single thing off that list he wanted for me. So by the time the book picks up again, when I'm in my mid-30s, I was exhausted. 
Do you think at some conscious or unconscious level you were you were doing that because you thought your dad wanted it? Oh, absolutely. You know, what I learned later, I became a grief counselor for bereaved kids who were in my situation, trying to learn from them. And one thing that I learned was that achievement or overachievement can be a trauma response. And really what it is, is an effort to control the uncontrollable. That subconsciously you believe that if I only do X, then Y will hurt a little less. And, and that, that's what I was doing. I was trying to exert control over a world where we can lose people we love for no reason at all. I think you described it as overachieving to contradict feelings of helplessness. Absolutely. Do you think that's what it did for you? It helped you um, overcome grief or a feeling of helplessness at some level? I would say it distracted me on pretty much every level. And you get positive reinforcement from the world. You know, so the better you do at school, the better you do in sports, and then eventually the better you do in your career, you get accolades, you get praise. And so even though for me in the end, it was a form of a unhealthy coping mechanism, I was getting rewarded for it. The only problem comes when enough losses catch up to you. And when new losses happen, that coping mechanism stopped working for me. You mentioned that you volunteered at a center for grieving children. And you got some great advice from an eight-year-old girl. She said, the worst thing that you can do is try not to be sad. How did hearing that affect your own grieving process? It brought me to my knees. I spent decades trying to avoid feeling sad. I tried to achieve my way out of sadness. I tried to use excellence as an analgesic on a pain that I believe I couldn't have admitted was there. And seeing these kids face their own losses and their own pain with such bravery just brought me to my knees. When you realized that you had misinterpreted, in a way, why your dad had pushed you to accomplish so much, how did you then begin to live your life differently? Well, first I realized that grief wasn't something to run from, that my negative feelings weren't something to avoid, and that grief isn't something that we move through. And I think we really get that wrong in Western culture, that we think of grief, if not in stages, we do think it's something to survive or get to the other side of. And I realized that that was impossible. And not only that, but by turning towards it and turning towards my own pain, the joy of my life, the wonder, the beauty, it, all of that was turned up in the world. It was like I could finally see in a new color spectrum. Laurel Braitman is the author of What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey Through Loss to Love. Laurel, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Leila Fadden. We have a 
high winds this morning and rain that might be heavy at times. Around noon, temperatures start to fall to the low 30s and the rain turns into snow. It'll continue into the late evening, bringing about 4 to 6 inches in the Boston area. Tomorrow morning, there's a slight chance of snow, but more likely we'll see rain. It'll dry up by afternoon for a mostly cloudy day in the low 40s. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Stock markets will seek to rebound today after going into free fall in response to fears of a broad financial crisis sparked by the collapse of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks. It's Tuesday, March 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, housing prices in East Palestine have plummeted following last month's train derailment. Some residents say they feel trapped because they can't sell. I'm stuck in this contaminated, infested, chemical-bound house and We're sick, and we've never been this sick, and I'm just, I want out. Also, we hear from advocates for indigenous communities about the White House approving a controversial drilling project in Alaska, plus why car prices are still so much higher than they were before the pandemic. Our average loan amount um, 10 years ago was $13,000, and today it's $24,000. Heavy rain turns to snow today. We may get four to six inches around Boston. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden and some Democratic members of Congress are calling for tougher banking regulations. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports this follows the collapse of California's Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in New York. President Biden is pledging to do whatever is needed to prevent any additional bank runs. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration is confident in the steps that it's taken so far. The Fed has taken, again, temporary actions to assure banks have the ability to meet the needs of all depositors. And like the president said, Congress uh, and the banking regulators, like I said, should should strengthen the rules for, for banks to protect American jobs and small businesses. Some Democrats are calling on Congress to revisit legislation that was passed five years ago, easing regulations that were imposed on banks after the 2008 financial crisis. That bill passed both the House and Senate with bipartisan support. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A major storm is still hitting California. So much snow has fallen in the northern and eastern mountains, it can be measured in yards. In southern and central California, the problem is flooding. The Pajaro River breached a levee in Monterey County, north of Los Angeles. Hundreds of homes are flooded. Shauna Murray is with Monterey County Water Resources and says contractors are still trying to patch it. The river is still going to flow outside of the breach. Um, And so when these next storms come in later in the week, which look like very similar height to these last storms, um, we will have water coming over the breach area. Again, we want to stabilize it so it doesn't get larger, and we're trying to plug it. The National Weather Service says a nor'easter is crashing into northeastern states this morning. Some areas from northern Pennsylvania to Maine are affected, and some areas could get more than two feet of snow. 
Forecasters say winds could reach the strength of a tropical storm and warn that travel in some areas could be dangerous. Russia has agreed to an extension of a Black Sea grain export deal. This follows talks with the United Nations, but it's just a reprieve. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, Russia is only endorsing the agreement for another 60 days. The deal was first brokered by the UN in Turkey back in July, ending a Russian military blockade of the Black Sea that prevented Ukraine from exporting its massive grain stores to global markets. Moscow had been threatening to exit the deal ahead of a Saturday deadline over complaints the agreement freed up Ukrainian grain while failing to live up to promises to ease restrictions on Russia's agricultural exports. Russia now says it wants to see, quote, tangible progress on that front if the agreement is to continue past May. UN and Turkish officials have pleaded to keep the initiative in place, noting the deal had already allowed more than 23 million tons of grain to reach world markets, helping lower global food prices. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. You're listening to NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Power outages are mounting across the state as a result of today's nor'easter. According to the State Emergency Management Agency, there are more than 36,000 power outages statewide, most of them in western Mass. High winds have led to the cancellation of MBTA ferry service today. The Steamship Authority has also canceled several trips between the Cape and Islands. At Logan Airport, more than 100 flights are canceled this morning. Boston Public Schools are open today, but afternoon and evening activities are canceled. Newton residents will decide whether to increase their own property taxes in a special election today. If approved, the Proposition 2.5 override would provide the city an additional $15 million in revenue. WBUR's Samuela Petricelli has more. Proponents of the override say Newton needs the money to fix deteriorating schools, prevent teacher layoffs, and provide other services. Newton Mayor Ruth Ann Fuller is among those supporting it. Our quality of life today, including our parks and athletic fields and playgrounds and our roads, as well as our collective future and climate change, that's what this override is all about. Opponents argue homeowners already face financial strain, and now is not the time to ask for additional taxes. Since 1990, Newton has approved two overrides and rejected two. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samuela Petricelli. Two Boston police officers who publicly pushed back against Mayor Michelle Wu's COVID-19 vaccine mandate are out of the job. Sergeant Shana McCatone was an outspoken critic of the mandate and led protests outside Wu's Roslindale home. Officer Joseph Abashiono was previously investigated for being at the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Police Commissioner Michael Cox says Catone was fired for violating department rules and procedures. He says Abashiono violated the department's code of ethics. The Boston First Responders Union calls the firings, quote, politically motivated. State officials are confident Massachusetts banks are on solid footing. That's despite the recent collapse of the Silicon Valley and Signature Banks. State Economic Affairs Secretary Yvonne Howe says SVB and Signature are different business models than typical banks. They provide riskier loans to startups and venture capitalists. Still, she says local banks are being swamped in the aftermath. They're getting people coming in trying to move their money from SVB or Signature into new accounts. So trying to open up accounts quickly, trying to wire and transfer money in. 
So there's just a lot of activity. People are flat out. House says her office will continue to check in with local banks. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. Last night was a disappointing one for Celtics fans. They lost to the Houston Rockets, who started the night with the worst record in the NBA. The Rockets beat the Seas by two points. The Celtics have tonight off. They'll be on the road tomorrow in Minnesota. The Bruins will play in Chicago tonight. They'll skate with the Blackhawks at 8.30. Heavy rain today with a high wind warning and a winter weather advisory that goes into effect this hour. Temperatures will fall throughout the day to the low 30s. The rain will likely turn to heavy wet snow sometime after noon and last into the late evening, four to six inches possible in the Boston area. Tomorrow, a chance of snow in the morning, but that'll likely turn to more rain. High temperatures in the low 40s. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston at 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. $250,000. That number has become the subject of a heated debate. The federal government is guaranteeing deposits of customers with more than $250,000 at two failed banks, amounts that aren't normally insured. Is this bad precedent or necessary to keep the financial system stable? Here to walk us through that is NPR's Arzu Rizvani. Hi, Arzu. Hi, Sasha. So tell us how FDIC insurance would normally work. So for years, $250,000 has been the limit. Anything under that has long been fully protected by the government's FDIC. Anything over is considered uninsured. Banks pay fees that go toward an insurance fund, and that's what's used to pay people back should a bank go belly up. Again, up to $250,000. Now, there was an exception made over the weekend to go well beyond that limit. The FDIC tapped into that fund, that insurance fund, to pay the customers of the two collapsed banks back in full, which basically means that those previously uninsured portions suddenly became guaranteed. And what is the point of the FDIC saying that there are limits to what it will insure when, as we're seeing in this case, it's actually willing to go beyond that? Well, these limits were designed to keep people from thinking they would always be saved. I talked to Sheila Baer, who ran the FDIC during the 2008 recession. Here's how she put it. It's a question of moral hazard for wealthier people or companies, uh, large organizations that will have bigger deposits. You want them to look at the bank carefully, kick the tires, make sure it's a safe place. So the government wants customers to scrutinize their banking institutions and not get too comfortable with the idea that the government is simply going to intervene every time things go sideways. But regulators argue that they had to make an exception this time because there were signs that panic was spreading and this was the only way to keep the financial system stable. But Arzu, now many people are likely to think that they're always going to be saved if their bank fails. So has the FDIC created a precedent here? 
Yes, that is the concern because of the FDIC's intervention. If other banks run into trouble in the days or weeks to come, the fear is that there will be greater pressure on the FDIC to step in and save those uninsured deposits as well. This has sparked a huge debate about when to go above and beyond the standard guarantees of $250,000 and for whom, you know, is it the ultra wealthy? Is it the institutions that cater to a lucrative industry? Or could it be that it's the opposite? Is our financial system such that any bank nowadays is really too big to fail? And what do we know about whether there are other banks out there also at risk of failing? Well, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were unique in many ways. They were the banks of choice for tech startups and those in the cryptocurrency space, whereas other banks have a much more diverse clientele. As we know, tech companies have been hurting a lot lately and downsizing. Crypto has, of course, run into major problems in recent months. These tech and crypto companies started pulling their deposits out of these banks at a time when the banks were seeing losses in their investments in government bonds. Those bonds, which are normally safe, lost value to climbing interest rates, and that is what put the banks in a squeeze. Former Fed officials and regulators I've spoken to, you know, they do wonder if other banks have not properly accounted for interest rate hikes in their investments. Those moves may have been okay a year or two ago. These days, maybe not so much. That's NPR's Arzu Rezvani. Thank you. You're welcome. California is getting more rain today, a lot of it. Parts of the state already drenched from record-setting rain are now under flood warnings, and residents are bracing for another downpour. Here's Monterey County Sheriff Tina Nieto in a recent press conference. Folks, we are not done yet. We are dealing with rain and wind events that I can only describe as a super soaker saturation event. Hashtag SusoSat. Rains are so heavy that one town on California's central coast, Pajaro, flooded over the weekend after a levee failed. More than 8,000 people were evacuated. John Laird is the state senator representing the area. He saw this coming, and he joins us now. And Senator Laird, thank you for doing this very early on West Coast time when I know you're dealing with a lot of other big issues. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. I have been looking this morning at cell phone videos and TV footage and online images of people with sandbags, with cars submerged nearly to their hoods. Give us a sense of what the people in your district are dealing with. Well, we had nine atmospheric rivers in January, and it led to highway closures, mudslides, big waves, uh, uh, just extensive damage. Uh, up and down the Central Coast. You have been concerned for quite some time that this area was particularly vulnerable. You, you saw this coming. You you tried to do something about it. I, explain what you tried to do and how that has not come through. Actually, we successfully did something, and that is this levee system for the Pajaro River that flows down this agricultural valley at the coast was built 70 years ago without enough capacity to handle major storms. It just was built too small. And we worked really hard to fund a brand new project that had the capacity. And the federal government came through with the Army Corps of Engineers and the support of Senators Padilla-Feinstein and Congressmember Panetta. And I did a bill in the state legislature that bought the entire local share out because it's a disadvantaged community and they couldn't pay for the local share of 
tens of millions of dollars, and then they did tax themselves for the operations. This project is ready uh, to actually be built. It's in uh, the final stages. It was going to start in a year, and when we had the ceremony with Senator Padilla and others last fall, I said a version of, I hope to God it doesn't rain before we get this built. And unfortunately, it has. So this was a race against time, and, and this community lost that race. Exactly. And and just, it is so tragic. Um, there are just uh, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people out of their homes. Many of them had no place to go. Sirens came on in the middle of the night when the levee broke. They only have the clothes on their back and what they were able to reach and carry immediately as they left. Is there some kind of support you're hoping to still get more of from the federal or state governments? Well, we're hoping to get the support to patch and to handle the situation. And this levee break has grown to uh, a couple hundred yards, and, and they're working hard to patch it. They're dropping rocks. They're doing everything else. And the levee... Uh, is stressed below Pajaro now because a huge lake of water has been created, dammed by Highway 1 in the area, and there's quite likelihood the levee's going to breach in a second area and go back into the river, and we we hope it's when the flows are low so it doesn't blow out the entire levee. So there are still some critical moments to pass in this crisis. We hope that your hopes come true. Thank you very much for making time. This is California State Senator John Laird. Thank you. Today is Equal Pay Day. The date, March 14th, is the day of the year when women's pay finally catches up to what men made last year. In other words, women have to work an extra 10 weeks to be compensated equally. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith looks at why the pay gap persists. For a lot of people, there is a moment when they realize just how unfair pay can be. For Bridget Fry, that moment happened at her first job at a tech company. One of her fellow workers had gotten their hands on a list of everyone's salaries and posted it online. A site that was called um, Eft Company. I don't know if I can say the actual (laughs) name. Fry says what struck her more than anything was that what people got paid did not seem to have anything to do with their skills, their title, or how hard they worked. Did it seem random? Yes. There was no obvious logic, just this big gray area. There was a lot of gray. And then, gee, it seems like certain groups of people are more impacted by that ambiguity, by that gray space. Groups like women, the gender pay gap. So women earn about 82 cents for every dollar a man earns. For black women, it's about 65 cents. For Latina women, it's about 60 cents. That pay gap has basically not budged in 20 years. But a lot of other things have. More women now graduate from college than men. More women graduate from law school. Roughly half of medical school graduates are women. So how has the pay gap not changed? Well, you know, that's the, um, in my day, it was the $64,000 question. Francine Blau is an economist at Cornell. She has spent years studying the gender pay gap. She says one of the biggest factors is childcare. Women will shy away from really demanding positions or will work just part-time in order to be able to care for their kids. Switching occupations or firms to those that are more family-friendly but perhaps pay lower wages. And many will leave the workforce entirely. For every woman at a senior management level who gets promoted, two women leave, the majority citing childcare. 
But even accounting for all of this and just about everything else, Lao found women still earn less, about 8% less for the same job. What we call an unexplained pay gap. One remedy here is negotiation. But Lao says women are very likely to experience backlash when they ask for more. And also, it can be hard to know how much to ask for. Part of that is changing. A handful of states now require salary ranges be included in job postings so people can more easily get information that, in the past, relied on moments like a renegade worker creating a tell-all website. Bridget Fry says she has carried that moment forward in her career. Something that stayed with me when I eventually became a manager, just sort of this visceral understanding of how unfair these things can be and not wanting that to happen on my watch. Fry is now the chief technology officer at online real estate brokerage Redfin and pushed the company to have transparent salary ranges for every position. She says the less gray area there is, the closer to equal pay can become. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we mark three years since schools closed for the pandemic by looking at the lasting impact on students and teachers. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. Paris Hilton was the it girl of the 2000s, an influencer before Instagram and TikTok existed. But now she's opening up about her life beyond the flashbulbs of the paparazzi. For so long, I've been misunderstood and underestimated, and nobody really knew what I went through in life. Her new memoir on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We have high winds and it's raining across the region at this hour. That'll continue and be heavy at times until about noon when temperatures start falling to the low 30s and it'll become heavy, wet snow. Tonight, more snow and high winds still in the low 30s. Travel will be treacherous. There's also a risk of coastal flooding. In all, we may get four to six inches of accumulation in the Boston area. Areas of central and northern Massachusetts could see 12 to 18 inches. Tomorrow, rain in the morning. Those showers should take off by about noon. Then it'll be mostly cloudy in the low 40s. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks Dayquil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. More at keepersecurity.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Leila Faldin. 
President Biden's approval of an oil drilling project in northern Alaska has rattled climate advocates who say it defies the administration's climate goals. The approval of what's known as the Willow Project has also alienated some indigenous residents of Alaska's North Slope who hoped for an end to new drilling on federal land. Jade Begay is with the advocacy group NDN Collective, which supports indigenous rights and opposes the Willow Project. She also sits on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, and she's with us this morning. Good morning, Jade. Good morning. Great to be here. Thanks for being here. So what was your reaction to the Biden administration's approval of this oil drilling project? Yeah, thank you for the question. I think just off the bat, really disappointed. Um, I personally am really excited and have been really excited about a lot of the uh, climate commitments and the climate agenda at large and have been an advocate for implementing that and wanting to see that climate agenda succeed um, and have been working to make sure that that happens. Um, However, this really is counterintuitive to a lot of the work that I am doing and Mm -hmm. that many others are doing on the ground. What are your biggest concerns? Well, I think, you know, the obvious concern is that this really backtracks a lot of the climate commitments made by the Biden administration. Now, there are indigenous groups that support Willow. We spoke to um, Nagaruk Harcharik is with the group called Voice of the Arctic and Opiate. Here's what he told us. Biden said it. We're going to need the oil for at least 10 years is what he mentioned. I, I think there's an easy argument that it's going to be longer than that. Do you get it within the United States where the project's gone through the most or a lot of environmental scrutiny through the permitting process? Do you outsource that to other countries like uh, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, where, you know, if, if it's not Alaska, we've got to get it from somewhere. So what do you think of that argument, that it needs to happen somewhere? Right. Well, I think, you know, it's correct that we can't just, you know, stop using oil and gas overnight. But mm-hmm. that is why we advocate for a justice-based transition. And I think one of the, the things that's concerning is that, you know, Biden did make the commitment to invest in innovative solutions um, to improve the uh, the array of and the options of solutions for affordable, reliable, clean energy technologies and infrastructure. So this type of commitment to oil and gas, which really just locks in, you know, potentially 30 years of more oil and gas uh, extraction in, in ecosystems that are so sensitive Uh, really puts us on, like I said earlier, just this, you know, two steps forward, one step backward. Mm. And um, it's concerning because we're not going to reach our targets to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So it sounds like you don't see this as fitting into the administration's goal to cut carbon emissions in half by 2030. That's right. Jade Begay is with the advocacy group NDN Collective, and she's a member of the White House Environmental Justice Council. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Layla.
Some pharmacies in Mexico that cater to U.S. tourists and medical travelers are selling medications laced with deadly fentanyl. That's the finding of new research that analyzed pills purchased at legal drugstores in northern Mexico. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann reports. Chelsea Shover is a researcher at the UCLA School of Medicine. Her team tested pain pills purchased legally at retail pharmacies in four cities in northern Mexico. For pills sold as oxycodone, we tested 27 and found that 10 or 11 of them contained either fentanyl or heroin. Because heroin and fentanyl are far more potent than medical-grade oxycodone, Schofer says people who buy these medications thinking they're legal and safe are at high risk of overdose and death. When I see that there are fentanyl pills somewhere that look like something else, I know that there have to have been people who died from that. Chover's team also found pills that looked like pharmacy medications laced with methamphetamines. Congressman David Trone from Maryland sent a letter to the U.S. State Department calling for a warning to be issued to travelers immediately. We should be absolutely very, very concerned. Uh, we've got almost 12 million Americans visiting Mexico every single year. According to Trone, it appears many Mexican pharmacies that boost profits by engaging in this high-risk practice are marketing drugs to Americans seeking lower-cost medications. Literally, a pharmacy on every corner, they're everywhere down there because the price of drugs is cheaper. On Saturday, the LA Times reported State Department officials apparently knew about the danger posed by legal pharmacies that are part of Mexico's medical tourism industry as long ago as 2019. That's when an American reportedly overdosed and died after purchasing medications in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. Congressman Trone says if U.S. officials were aware of the problem, they should have warned travelers sooner. The State Department sent a statement to NPR pointing to a standard notice included in its online information about Mexico that urges travelers to, quote, exercise caution when purchasing medications overseas. There's no reference to specific risks at Mexican pharmacies identified in this new research. Earlier this month, four Americans were kidnapped by gunmen while traveling to Mexico to seek low-cost medical care. Two of them were killed. That case had already raised concerns about the safety of medical tourism in the country. Brian Mann, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, this morning's rain will turn into heavy, wet snow that's already causing outages and prompting school closures and travel delays across the region. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce joins us for a deeper look and what's ahead. It's 829. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts Catering, full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings, Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell is out of the hospital after suffering a concussion and a rib fracture last week when he tripped and fell. Here's NPR's Giles Snyder. A statement from Senator McConnell's office says his recovery from a concussion is proceeding well. McConnell fell last week at a dinner event in Washington, D.C. His office says doctors discovered what's described as a minor rib fracture over the weekend. McConnell is to continue to receive treatment at a rehabilitation facility before returning home. It's not clear how long he will require physical therapy. McConnell is 81 years old. A major nor'easter is dumping heavy snow from upstate New York to New England. Meteorologist Andrew Orison with the National Weather Service says snowfall from this late winter storm will likely be measured by the foot. We are going to be looking at pretty heavy snowfall rates uh, during the peak of the storm. Uh, We're going to be looking at snowfall rates of as much as two to three inches per hour. We do think some areas will see as much as two to two and a half feet of snow before it's all done. The nor'easter is causing flight delays and cancellations, especially in Boston and New York City. Heavy snow continues to fall in the mountains of northern and central California as well. Winter storm warnings remain in effect at higher elevations. Dow futures are up more than 200 points. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Today's winter weather will continue to make travel difficult throughout the day. Highway officials say warm, wet weather has made it hard to pre-treat the roads. Jonathan Gulliver is the MassDOT Highway Administrator. He says to stay home if you can. This is a very worrisome situation right now with this particular storm. It's a powerful storm. There's, there's bringing a lot of different uh, elements to it. The cold weather that's going to be rolling in later today along with the snow means that you could see very icy conditions form on the roadways quickly. Conditions are also knocking out power to homes. More than 43,000 outages are reported statewide. Those are mostly in western Massachusetts. We'll have more on the forecast coming up in a few minutes here on Morning Edition. A Haverhill state representative is pushing for an extension to the state's free school meals program. Democrat Andy Vargas says the meals keep students well-fed and better prepared for classes. Testifying at a legislative hearing yesterday, he also said the program saves families about $1,200 a year per kid. Vargas says that's in line with Governor Maura Healy's goal of tackling affordability in the state. A lawyer for the state Republican Party is recommending the organization drop a lawsuit filed by its former chairman against his own treasurer. Former Mass GOP chairman Jim Lyons sued Treasurer Pat Crowley last year after Crowley apparently blocked Lyons's access to the party's accounts. That access was restored within about a week. According to the Boston Herald, attorney Brian Kelly says no actual damage was done and the cost of pursuing legal action isn't worth it. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years on stage March 16th to 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Last night was a disappointing one for Celtics fans. They lost to the Houston Rockets, who started the night with the worst record in the NBA. The Rockets And they'll ultimately beat the Seas by two points. The Celtics have tonight off. They'll be on the road tomorrow in Minnesota. The Bruins will play in Chicago tonight. They skate with the Blackhawks at 8.30. Weather conditions are changing rapidly across the region this morning. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce is keeping us up to date on the latest developments. And she's back with us. Thanks for being here, Danielle. 
Hey, thanks for having me again, Rupa. So what are the conditions like right now? Oh, we've got everything from heavy snow and quarter mile visibility to heavy rain and wind gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour at the coast right now. Since we last talked over the last couple of hours, the rain snow line has made a little bit of eastward progress. So it's hovering right around the 495 belt right now where we have flipped over, it's those big, you know, gigantic snowflakes. And that will be the case even for the city of Boston too, as that rain snow line collapses east over the course of late morning to early afternoon for most of us. So how will it play out over the next few hours? So next few hours, I'm anticipating a flip to snow, 495 to 128 between, let's say, you know, 930 and 1030. Boston, I'd say around or just before noontime, give or take, we see a flip over. And then a little later, 1 to 2 p.m. on the South Shore. It's not like there's a period of sleet or anything in between. It's a quick changeover and the snow will come down hard for the remainder of the afternoon into the evening with some really treacherous road conditions. Yeah, this is the tough kind of snow to deal with, right? right? Absolutely. This is the wet, pasty, clingy snow. You know, uh, I would probably shovel or snowblow in kind of rounds, particularly where you get the highest amounts north and west of Boston, because this is not a snow where you want to wait until the end and kind of shovel it all just because that's going to put a lot of strain you know, on your back and uh, be a little more difficult to move around in terms of cleanup is concerned. And you're still thinking that the snow will continue until about eight or nine tonight? Yeah, I think the intensity of the snow will be greatest for Boston, especially from like noon to 8 p.m. It should wrap up 9 to 11 p.m. with just a few lingering flurries and snow showers after that. So most of the accumulation happens this afternoon and evening and then wraps up after that. Can you take us through the snow totals you expect in different parts of the region? So what's remarkable to me right now is just actually looking up some of the snow that's already fallen. We have 20 and 21 inches of snow in western Massachusetts wow. that's already come down right now. We have uh, 12, 13, 14-inch reports in northern Worcester County and far western Middlesex County already. So they're going to end up close to two feet in spots. Um, for somewhere like Boston, for us, it's four to six inches. That includes for the north and south shore, too. Maybe a little less right along the immediate coast when you get down near, you know, somewhere like uh, Situate, Cohasset, Marshfield. Plymouth, maybe according to an inch or two back down to the Cape. But the jackpot zone is certainly north and west of Boston. 128 to 495, it may be more like six to eight, and then amounts will ramp up the farther north and west you go. We just heard from the highway administrator saying basically stay off the roads. How long do you think we'll need to be off the roads? I think, you know, if you could stay off the roads until... It's tough because 8 to 9 p.m. the snow lets up, but the wind has been howling out there and that's only going to get worse through the day. So 40 to 50 mile per hour gusts right now will be 50 to 60 mile per hour gusts at the coast this evening. We may even see some isolated gusts to 50 through the interior. So yes, while the snow's winding down, especially the closer you get to the coastline, I'd say wait until late evening. And if you can just, you know, hold out until tomorrow morning to get back out there on the roads. Are you worried about flooding or freezing? So flooding, there's a couple different things. Number one, it's been you know pouring in spots, so there have been some hydroplaning concerns um, and big puddles, standing water from eastern Massachusetts back down to the Cape. Um, the second part of that is coastal flooding, which we had some minor coastal flooding this morning with the high tide. And I do think there'll be another round of um, widespread minor coastal flooding this evening and probably again tomorrow morning in Cape Cod Bay at the coast, along with some erosion at our beaches. Um, so that's kind of one of the big concerns uh, at the shoreline in terms of the wind and the waves piling up. Hmm. 
WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce, thank you so much for keeping us up to date. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Rupa. It's 838. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. It's been three years since schools closed their doors in the United States, as they did all over the world, to try to slow the spread of COVID. Back then, Anya Kamenetz was covering education for NPR, and her reporting turned into a book about the impact of the pandemic on children and their families. It's called The Stolen Year, and we invited her back to talk about what we now know and what comes next. Anya, hi. Hi, Sasha. We're now able to measure the impact of the pandemic on kids in schools. We know there was significant learning loss now being reflected in test scores. An AP investigation found that almost a quarter million children across 21 U.S. states are missing entirely from schools. And the CDC says teen mental health is worse than ever. Do we know how much of that is due to school closures versus all the other havoc that the pandemic wreaked on us educationally, personally, professionally? Yeah, it's a good question. When you're talking about the loss of learning or children even going missing from school entirely, I think researchers would say that's a direct result of remote learning just not being an adequate substitute for in-person school for most children. It disconnected them physically from all the support in their schools. And the continued absence of children from school, that also may be connected to all the absenteeism that happened because of quarantines even after schools reopened. The downturn in teen mental health, though, that started before the pandemic. And clinicians tell me, yes, the social isolation of lockdowns didn't help. We also have to understand, though, that this was a pandemic where more than a quarter million American children have lost a parent or caregiver. So it was never just about closing schools. Anya, you've been checking in with some of the families and teachers you profiled in your book and for NPR. So you've been able to track them over time. What are you hearing? It's really heartbreaking, Sasha. Debbie Rosenthal-Harris, she's a veteran teacher originally from Guatemala who teaches in the bilingual program at Buena Vista Horace Mann, which is an elementary school in San Francisco that serves a really largely low-income immigrant community. And she was putting in 12-hour days when I first talked to her, translating her kindergarten class into online videos. When I talked to her recently, I was really surprised to hear her say, We worked so hard and didn't make a difference. We should have stayed in school. Does that mean, Anya, that she at one point supported the school closures and now questions whether they were worth doing? When I first talked to her, she was very concerned about her own safety. Now she agrees the decisions were made with a lot of uncertainty and fear. And San Francisco, of course, had some of the longest closures in the country. Now she's seeing this terrible toll in her students who are now in third grade. They need even more support than before. They have even more struggles with basic needs than they did before and with mental health. And Rosenthal Harris says they just don't seem acclimated to the classroom in the same way. I have two kids that walk out of my room at any given point when they just don't feel like doing something. I never experienced that. Anya, my husband is a seventh grade science teacher, and that story that teacher just relayed 
reflects or sort of echoes some of the stories he's been coming home with. He feels like COVID changed his students in a fundamental way. So I assume that what you're hearing is kind of common around the country. It absolutely is. And, you know, certainly there are kids who are resilient, who are thriving. We should recognize that. But the levels of challenges are just a lot higher than they were before. Anya, how do we emerge from all this? Well, Sasha, I'm out there ringing the bell that we don't stop paying attention to this. A huge, huge emphasis I'm hearing is on mental health and well-being for children and for healing burnout in their caregivers and their teachers. Debbie said that many of her colleagues have left some in the middle of the year. And we see schools making efforts, you know, to invest in mental health and social and emotional well-being, but they can't do it alone. I mean, especially when you think about the community level effort that's going to be required for these children who are still out of school, who may be drifting into paid work. So it's really all of us who have to take a role in supporting kids and mentoring them and getting them back on track. Anya Kamenetz used to cover education for NPR. Anya, thank you. Thank you. Coming up on Morning Edition, after years of low inventory caused by the pandemic, dealerships are finally filling up their lots with new cars, but prices still remain high. We look at why. It's 8.43. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. It's a rainy, windy morning across the greater Boston region. Temperatures will fall throughout the day to the low 30s, and by about noon, the showers will turn to snow. The wind and snow continue tonight, and in all, we may get 4 to 6 inches in Boston. Tomorrow morning, rain in the low 40s, then mostly cloudy in the afternoon. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, a Massachusetts banking trade group says it's business as usual, despite the closure of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks. Kathleen Murphy is president and CEO of the Massachusetts Bankers Association. She says she approves of the way federal regulators stepped in over the weekend to protect depositors. The process has worked. And so I have every confidence that that environment will continue. And also that we have these incredibly strong banks here in Massachusetts that will continue to serve no matter what the future will bring. The Massachusetts Bankers Association represents 125 banks across the state. A Boston investment firm wants to expand its holdings into grocery shopping centers. Long Point Realty Partners raised $225 million for those investments. Long Point tells the Boston Business Journal it's focused on expanding into high-growth states like California and Texas. It's 845. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. 
The auto market has been deeply weird for almost three years now. Some parts of it are getting more normal, like dealer lots aren't empty anymore. But when it comes to prices, NPR's Camila Damanaski has found that normal is still nowhere in sight. Noah and India Grabish checked out a fully loaded Chevy Suburban at a recent auto show. Suburban was 86000 Yeah, I uh. care. They have a four-year-old son and another baby on the way, so they want a bigger vehicle. But yes, he just said $86,000. It looks nice, but we don't need all that space. But it's really nice, but for eighty-six. Yeah. No. Yeah, no, sums up how a lot of Americans feel about car prices these days. The average new vehicle is just under $49,000. That's actually down a bit from the previous month, but it's much, much higher than pre-pandemic. And used cars? Wholesale prices were getting better last year, but now they're rising again. Ed Kim is the chief analyst of Auto Pacific, and he says, brace yourself. I think for at least a few more years to come, you know, we're going to see quite a bit of pain in the used car space as far as affordability. To understand why prices are still so high, first, consider all the cars and trucks that weren't made over the last three years. Every production line that shut down for a lack of computer chips or another supply chain snarl. And then when automakers did sell vehicles, they focused on their most profitable ones, which are big, expensive, top of the line. Think, you know, an $86,000 SUV. Smaller, cheaper, more ordinary vehicles. These sorts of entry-level vehicles have been leaving the market at a very surprising rate as automakers focus on these higher margin, higher profit vehicles. American cars have been getting bigger since well before the pandemic, but the disappearance of the cheap end of the market accelerated sharply as supply chain woes kicked in. So today, if you're looking for a really nice car, you've got options. But in the budget category, not so much. There's a nonprofit, On the Road Lending, that provides loans to working families to buy vehicles, reasonably priced vehicles that are still under warranty. Think a modest two-year-old sedan without too many miles on it. The kind of car they want to help people buy hasn't changed. But the prices have definitely changed. Michelle Corson is the founder and CEO. Our average loan amount 10 years ago was $13,000, and today it's $24,000. I mean, that's a really big jump in a 10-year period. And of course, everyone's big question is, what's next? Some automakers say they want to make more affordable vehicles. They know there's a market that would buy them. But on the other hand, they are making a lot more money off the pricey ones. Here's analyst Ed Kim again. We're not really expecting to see, you know, this resurgence of inexpensive gasoline-powered vehicles. And that's because all this cash carmakers are getting, it's going toward making cheaper electric vehicles. So Kim says more affordable rides are on the way, but they'll be powered by batteries, and they'll take a while to get here. Camila Dominowski, NPR News.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Robin Young is in studio to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Robin. Thanks so much for braving the weather to come see us. I am so brave. <laughs> I brave the rain. <laughs> well, it's the snow that's coming that's mm-hmm. going to hit us. We'll keep an eye on that. But at noon today, we have Sheila Bear, who is the former head of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. This was during the 2008 housing collapse. As she and everyone is saying, what we're in right now is not that. That's when there were bad mortgages that had infected every right. part of the, the finance world. Uh, this is what? I mean, you know, and how do we fight this? I want to ask her. She's been saying that she doesn't think uh, that the Fed should continue to raise interest rates. Well, then how do you fight inflation? You know, right. what should we be doing there? And what are we supposed to do? I mean, here was a bank, uh, SBV, that had you know, no diversity, uh, no diversity of clients or of the way they were investing their money. They had these treasury bonds, and again, the rising interest rates made them lose their value. But who's supposed to account for that? I mean, what are we supposed to do? So I, I can't wait to talk to her about all of that. And then a wonderful cookbook. It's from Vermont. It's called My Vermont Table. It's by Gazini Bullock Prado. And you may recognize the middle name. Well, you may recognize the whole name. Uh, because Gazina, oh, uh, she well, she's a star of the Food Network. Ah. You know, she has her own show and everything. I know you're wed to the Food Network. <laughs> um, but her sister is Sandra Bullock. And my cousin oh. in Vermont, I thought my, my cousin in Vermont isn't going to want to hear a book from somebody who's not from Vermont, mm-hmm. a cookbook. She loves her. And she says Sandra Bullock sometimes comes to her little bake shop. Wow. So we'll talk to her about her new cookbook, My Vermont Table. And you can guess there's a lot of baking with maple syrup. Oh, I hope you get to eat. Oh, I always. <laughs> Thank you, Robin. Thank you. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. There is so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. GardnerMuseum.org. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm seeing investors starting to bet that the banking crisis of the last few days may have been contained. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio. No new banks have gone bust since the initial two, Silicon Valley and Signature, where in those two cases, all depositors have access to their money, even what had been uninsured deposits. President Biden says taxpayers will bear no losses for this rescue. So where's the money coming from? It's called the Deposit Insurance Fund. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes took a look. Any bank insured by the FDIC has to pay quarterly premiums to the FDIC. I guess it is life insurance. It's basically life insurance for a bank. Dan Giedemann is an economics professor at Grand Valley State University. And just like with life insurance, if the bank is healthy. But we'll charge them a much lower premium than if somebody maybe behaves recklessly. Those premiums are the main source of revenue for the FDIC's deposit insurance fund. At the end of 2022, it had over $128 billion in it. It's unclear at the moment how much paying the depositors of the failed banks will set the fund back, and existing banks are required by law to make up the difference. Anna Gelprin is a law and finance professor at Georgetown and a fellow at the Peterson Institute. You know, when FDIC pays out, it has by statute a mandate to go back and have an extraordinary, you know, assessment 
on the living banks to recoup what it paid. Galpern points out those assessments became more comprehensive following the 2008 financial crisis, and the cost of them could trickle down to you and me and anyone who banks. Is it going to cost you? Probably. William Chittenden is a finance professor at Texas State University. Either you would earn a little bit less uh, on your deposit, or you might pay just a hair more on your loan. Those costs are part of what Georgetown's Anna Gelprin says comes with the social compact of operating a banking system. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Now, if you want to sound swaggeringly in the know with this banking mess, pull out what is called the KBW Bank Index. It's a benchmark of 24 hand-picked bank stocks to gauge what investors are thinking of banks in general in real time. Well, that KBW Bank Index closed down 11.5% yesterday, But this morning, futures prices are up for some key regional banks. First Republic is up 59% pre-market. That's a hint that investors are thinking the banking mess may have been contained. Yet let's talk about bank oversight with Marketplace's Nova Safo. And more oversight, or perhaps better oversight, David. In the short term, the Federal Reserve Board has announced a review of how Silicon Valley Bank was supervised, the results in a couple of months. And we spoke with Catherine Judge of Columbia Law School. She focuses on financial regulation, and she told us that regulators did clearly miss warning signs. There were a number of flags suggesting that Silicon Valley Bank may be in trouble, maybe growing in ways that potentially pose threats, maybe increasing its reliance on government-backed sources of of funding. And one of those sources, she says, was the federal home loan bank system. It's a lender banks often go to when they really need cash. And just yesterday, the system raised more than $88 billion by selling short-term bonds because it says it's seeing heightened demand from banks. Meanwhile, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts has an opinion piece in The New York Times putting the blame on a rollback in the rules that were put in after the last banking crisis. You saw that, Nova. I did. And the rollback she's talking about was in 2018. Instead of needing $50 billion in assets, now a bank needed $250 billion before stricter regulations. And the question now is what new rules, if any, are needed to make sure these banks are well managed, David? And there's word just now that consumer prices rose in line with expectations, up four-tenths of a percent in February. The Federal Reserve was set to raise interest rates next week to fight inflation, but given the rattled state of banks, the increase may get delayed until early May. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the eight-tenths of a percent range. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. With small ships that bring travelers closer to the destination, there is more time to explore, offering cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. Remember during high COVID, people moving from cities out to the country caused home prices to surge out in the sticks? Well, that drove up home prices, which does increase the tax base. But in the state of Maine, when home prices rise, the town is judged less needy and less money comes in from the state to pay for local schools. Maine Public's Robbie Feinberg reports from the last piece of Atlantic coastline before the Canadian border. The tiny town of Lubeck sits on the northern edge of Maine's jagged coastline along the Canadian border. Local school superintendent Kenneth Johnson says that despite the town's idyllic coastal setting, jobs and businesses are sparse. Many, many years ago, 40 or 50 years ago, the town benefited from sardine canning plants, but those are long gone. Like nearly every town in Maine, Lubeck relies on a mix of state and local funds to educate its roughly 120 students. 
But this year, Johnson says, that's going to be a lot harder. The median price for a home in Washington County, where Lubeck is located, has jumped by nearly 50% over the past three years. And Johnson says those higher prices are one factor leading to a projected loss of more than $100,000 in state funding for Lubeck schools, leaving a sizable budget hole. It'll be a very, very strong challenge to try and maintain the level of service that they are accustomed to and avoid deep budget cuts. Communities across southern and coastal Maine are wrestling with the same problem. Steve Bailey, the executive director of the Maine School Management Association, says that in general, Maine's school funding formula uses property values to determine the relative wealth of each community and how much state subsidy it receives. So when home prices skyrocket in a particular town, state funding drops. That particular piece has given the impression anyway that your know, towns are able to raise more money to be able to support education. Bailey says it's all added up to less state funding for many districts at a time when inflation is only increasing the costs of heat, electricity, and teacher wages. In a statement, the Maine Department of Education says that Governor Janet Mills has already made historic investments in education funding. Mills is also pledging to add more than $100 million for local schools in her latest budget proposal. School leaders say they're thankful for the support, but some are now calling for the state to adjust its school funding formula and to find new ways of assessing the relative wealth and economic needs of Maine's communities. I'm Robbie Feinberg for Marketplace. And I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We have high winds and rain this morning. Around noon, temperatures start to fall to the low 30s, and we'll start to see heavy, wet snow. Before the snow tapers off tonight, we may see about 4 to 6 inches in the Boston area. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington and Front Porch Arts Collective with K-I-S-S-I-N-G, a funny date night play and love letter to our city. Now through April 2nd, HuntingtonTheater.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.